0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: For $190 postage pay or check the individual issues and read each track on it, Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs.
2: And you are listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we'll be having the annual Duck Slaughter with Laurie Levy. Rhetoric Far From Reality with Malcolm Fraser and Refugees with Jack Smith. Another Malcolm Fraser in light, Later Life regarding Palestinians with Sonia Kaka. The US and ISIS. More and more information coming out. I'll be speaking with Dr Tim Anderson and also I'll be speaking with Dr Colin McNaughton about working in Malaysia whoops but something's just fallen but just for a couple of moments before we have Mr Kevin Healy a little bit of musing until I bring Kevin into the studio
3: you with love from above. A week, journalist, Lister, when we must correct a report from two weeks ago, that report Zion, Supremo, Benjamin, not another Yahoo, now supported a one-state solution. One state for us, no state for them. We quoted him unfairly as it turned out he denied the report and to prove it he said he would never support a palestinian state presumably on the grounds that they are a non-people anyway and benjamin is committed to establishing more of zion on the non-land where the non-people live and benjamin might have to change the electoral laws because he had to warn the zion people to get out and vote because the bloody arabs were getting out to vote and they are an enemy of the state and would support a non-people state so clearly given Having them a vote is a big, big, big mistake and they must lose the right to vote seeing they can't use it responsibly. Like the people of Gaza who wasted their democratic vote by voting for who they wanted and not who the US of the UN of the US of the world and Zion wanted. So there, we've cleared that up. Benjamin doesn't support a one-state solution. He just supports the non-people having no land, which is clearly not the same thing. "'Circumstances have to change,' he went on. "'Clearly, the non-people have to recognize the difference between a state, a country, and land. "'It's the latter two that create an impediment to a sensible solution, to sensible discussions. "'Zion has no objection to a non-people state, "'as long as the non-people stop insisting a non-people state also have a country and land.'" The Zion position hit a hurdle when the USR expressed concern that just possibly Zion mightn't be absolutely serious about a non-people state, based on the flimsy evidence that it said so. But difficulty was assuaged by the U.S. Armed spokesperson. U.S. Armed security, cooperation and military assistance will not be affected, he declared, causing Benjamin and the Zion establishment to shake in their boots uh, with laughter. We mentioned last week this South True Blue Aussie Socialist Party MP so relieved that she could now hold a sensible discussion in the Socialist Party about safer than safe uranium mining, processing, providing power, burying, without the usual long-haired commie greeny wooden work in an iron lot carrying on. But but it gets a bit confusing. This junior, tiny, team, true blue Aussie minister, Josh Frying Dead Icebergs, attacked a socialist opponent by describing his views as nuclear. Uh, So that's a pejorative, Josh. You're saying his position is really, really nasty and dangerous. That's right. Too right I am. Uh, So you think nuclear is nasty and dangerous. Certainly not. Nuclear is the hope of the planet. The big hope of stopping the icebergs from frying. Oh, so you think the socialist opponent is the hope of the side? No, he's bloody nuclear. Nasty and dangerous nuclear. See? Told you it was a bit confusing. Well, more with a bit, I'd say. Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, said this year's budget would be boring because last year's budget had fixed up all the problems the socialist government had left behind. Uh, but, 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 Tony, none of it got through. Not true. The message it unleashed like a bloody tornado got through. And the people it got through too explained it to me. So don't quibble about my choice of words. It fixed up all the problems the socialist government left behind. Hang on, you're, you're saying the budget that never got through fixed up all the problems you said would take years to fix up? Oh, uh, yes. So your ministers and backbenchers and you will now stop blaming the socialists for every problem in every sentence you utter? Certainly not. The economy is in a mess. Evil unions are running this country thanks to the mess we inherited from the irresponsible economic illiterate socialists. Uh, but, but you just said there were no economic problems. You're just quibbling about my choice of words. That's the trouble with this country, this great country. Well, potentially great if it wasn't for the socialists. Gee, imagine how much better the economy would be, how much better off we'd all be if the budget had got through. As lovers of fairness in a society constantly under threat from the terrorism of evil unions, we have to feel for the poor True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. For its esteemed Fairfax directors, lovers of fairness, Jamie Puker, Gita Wronghart, Lockie Muddock, following this negative press council ruling that a capitalist review headlined back in August, $390,000 tugboat workers to strike for 40% rise. And a story they would hold the country, and in particular the caring resource companies to ransom, was, was, the press council ruled, inaccurate, misleading and unfair Just because they weren't earning 390 grand and were seeking a 14% wage rise over four years. Okay, okay, a couple of small inaccuracies, but tugboat workers was accurate, yet the bloody evil union complained. Well, rightfully, the capitalist review was livid and devoted its editorial yesterday to the injustice of the ruling, which does more than set set a low bar for what a media watchdog would bother itself with. Ignore the fact that the grammarian editor entered a sentence with a preposition, because the principle's far more important Any proper judgment on this reporting, the editor points out logically, requires the views of both sides of the dispute to be considered. And the tugboat mechanics employer TK Shipping has not complained about the headline or the story. Gee, go on. Well, it went on. In fact, the headline was based on TK supplied information. Well, there's the injustice. How dare the press council listen to and or consult the evil union over the evil union's complaint when the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review knew consulting the evil union was obviously a waste of time. Case closed. The bloody press council's a left-wing commie front. The press council fails a basic test of journalism. The editorial goes on to check with both sides of a dispute. As a result, it gets mixed up over accuracy and fairness. See, it mightn't have been accurate, but it was fair to the both sides with which the capitalist review had consulted, the caring employer and the caring employer. Even by their standards, the capitalist Review Response sets a new high or or low, depending how we look at it. Might have been better to publish the conclusions tucked away on the bottom of P2 and let the matter lie. Oops, oops, shouldn't say lie, just because of a couple of small inadvertent inaccuracies. The minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers, rolled her eyes and hung the government out to dry, well, to dry off the mascara. Former big supremo Malcolm Wage Freezer rolled his eyes and let the government off the hook, took his last breath and the government breathed a sigh of relief. That politicians of both major parties praised his compassion for refugees, for asylum seekers, has to get some sort of prize for hypocrisy. That compassion was balanced by his wage freeze, concern for the ill by wiping out Medibank among other accomplishments, and earlier as Minister for Train Killers, sending train killers off to an illegal invasion to be bashed up by the Vietnamese which, of course, generated that generation of boat people fleeing the evil communists for which compassion he was praised. Perhaps the current asylum seekers fleeing our trained killers and other trained killers should claim to be fleeing evil communists, which would soften the caring business class socialist party's unity ticket huts. Whoops, those old enough will realise I shouldn't mention communism and unity tickets in the same breath. It's a cheery reflection on where we've come to that Malcolm died as some sort of icon of the left. Well, he was big enough, so maybe there were two of him. Only one of Lee Warn You. I warn you, you were going to criticise me. Are you going to criticise me? Um, um, 20 years without trial and seize his property. But but, but but you won't learn. Make that 40 years. See, our former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawke himself said Lee Warnie was a great bloke and a, and a great man. Those who criticise the paternalistic and at times authoritarian style of government he developed, Nuclear wrote, might pause to consider the scale of the challenges he faced. Yeah, like some silly critics who thought maybe the odd election wouldn't go astray. Well, there was the odd election, just that anyone not planning to vote for Lee Warnew was serving their 20 years without charge in the slot, while Lee was adding their property to his ever-expanding portfolio, like his private golf course where Nuclear said he enjoyed intellectually stimulating conversations. Well, I suppose they could share a laugh about suing anyone who even has a critical thought about them, another common thread between Nuclear Hawk and the dear deceased. Oh, and finally, the caring parent Logic of the Week award to that shooter at the opening of the duck murder season asked why he brought his dear little children to the fun, fun, fun sport. I want them to learn, he said between killing a few ducks, how to treat animals... Humanely. Huh? Obviously another intellectually stimulating conversationalist. Good afternoon.
2: And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy and we'll hear more about duck slaughter a bit later in the program. Federal Parliament yesterday was devoted to the positive legacies of Malcolm Fraser. But there is another side where the rhetoric is far from the reality And selective memory in operation, his actions on refugees and asylum seekers during 1975 and 1983. Yesterday, I spoke with Jack Smith from Project Safecom in Western Australia. But first, Jack, there was one person in Parliament yesterday who wasn't quite impressed with the day being devoted to Malcolm Fraser.
0: Yeah, well, David Lionhelm is very grumpy this morning with the entire day being dedicated to uh, motions of condolence to Malcolm Fraser, who died last week. And David Lionhelm says, well, this is an absolute waste of time. If Hawkey dies, we'll never get any work done. So I really hope Hawkey doesn't die. Otherwise, we get nothing done in this Parliament. And he says... When I first got to know about Fraser, he was an extremist right-wing man, and when he died, he was an extremist left-wing man. So he doesn't like what's happening in the Parliament today.
2: Okay, Jack. Well, we're looking at a paper by Katrina Statz, and it's called Welcome to Australia? Question mark a reappraisal of the Fraser government's approach to refugees, 1975 to 1983. You would like to comment because you are part of that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a very small rebellion that's developing very slowly. You know, for my private book I'm writing, I've just been writing about my earliest private rebellion in my family life. started at the 5 o'clock this morning, so I'm into the theme of small-time rebellion... And apparently I'm now amongst a band of three revolutionaries around the country, amongst all the academics. There are only three people. The first one is the Fraser expert, Dr. Nancy Vigliani, who did her PhD on Fraser's asylum seeker policies and the dealings with the Indo-Chinese during the Fraser government and how motivated Fraser was to have an intake of refugees. And the second one is um, an academic at Monash University, Rachel Stevens, who did her PhD on a comparative study between immigration debates in the US and Australia at the time of the Fraser government.
2: And what did you do to become part of the Troika?
0: Well, I did my master's dissertation, of course for a large part on the development of uh, people-smuggling legislation, and lo and behold, then I found out that Fraser was the first prime minister to establish and pass in the parliament, ran through the parliament, I should say, people-smuggling legislation. And then the 1979 cabinet papers were becoming public after its uh, 30-year embargo post-years of uh, cabinet papers. And I found that it's not all that rosy with Malcolm Fraser. And this paper that was published only last month in the Australian Journal of International Relations or International Affairs basically says, look, the reality is that there's only three people in Australia who do not consistently applaud and revere Fraser. Nancy Viviani is one of them, Jack Smith is another one, and Rachel Stevens at Monash University is the third one. So there's only three of us who are um, um, hardline dissenters against the applause freely and liberally handed out to Fraser. Now we know, of course, under Fraser's government, more than 70,000 Vietnamese were eventually resettled in Australia. But the paper that is now published, argues, along very similar lines as I have done, that Fraser was not the great humanitarian. Fraser only acted when he was forced to. And I'm even stronger than that. I have particularly concentrated on boat arrivals versus refugees. Because we know, of course, that in the time of Fraser, there was a particular kind of rhetoric that gained ascendance about Boats, refugees, boats and refugee intake Fraser successfully established a discourse Where boat arrivals were split into two categories The smaller boats were called spontaneous boats Which is a really silly denomination But they were called spontaneous boats Juxtaposed against organized boats And of course you can predict it Organized boats are the evil ones, and spontaneous boats are just lovely families just spontaneously setting out to Australia. So that's one direction of the discourse that was developed during the Fraser period. The second one was Fraser, who maintained that even until his memoirs that were published in 2009, he called it front-door and back-door refugees. And front-door refugees are the ones the Australian government accepts from overseas locations and selects from camps. And backdoor refugees are people that arrive without prior authorization in Darwin or Christmas Island. So there's another bad and good rhetorical division. So really, it is not all that rosy under Fraser. Then we also know that the term Q-jumper may well have first been uttered by Bob Hawke, who's still ACTU leader, trying to get into Canberra and hacking into Fraser during the 1977 election campaign when six boats arrived in one day. The term Q-jumper may well have been first used by Bob Hawke or perhaps Whitlam, but it was firmly established by Malcolm Fraser and his first immigration minister, Michael McKellar. In 1978... When the government basically shed itself because there was a prospect that a lot of refugee boats may sail directly to Australia, Malcolm Fraser's government, through the Immigration Department and Foreign Affairs Department, issued broadcasts through Radio Australia in all ASEAN nations in their own language programs. And these dire warnings broadcast on Radio Australia were warning people in strong determined terms to not become queue jumpers because all kinds of things may happen if you dare to come to Australia directly. That was Malcolm Fraser's government. And if it's a broadcast, Fraser has no rock to hide under when they're approved by this government, by the Australian government, and broadcast in all ASEAN countries warning and strong terms do not become a cue jumper. Fraser cannot hide behind the racism of the Immigration Department or their own actor, the independent actors within the Foreign Affairs Department. He was the Prime Minister, and he okayed that. It happened under his watch. He knew about it, or if he didn't know about it, he didn't do his job properly. But for the first year, following the 1977 election campaign, everybody, including all the nasty newspaper journalists, started using the word queue jumpers. That was Malcolm Fraser's gift to Australia. Let's not ever forget that this criminalization of boat arrivals who came without prior permission to Darwin, because they didn't want to rot away in refugee camps and instead set sail straight to Australia from Vietnam, that criminalization of boat arrivals happened under Malcolm Fraser, and I will not shy away from it. Now, I know why a lot of people shy away from it, because, of, ha- of course, what happened with Tampa in 2001, when the Tampa disgusting disaster happened, and John Howard raided the MV Tampa with um, the SAS squad in dinghies and basically boarded the ship without permission in the name of Australia, all kinds of people were shocked. Also, a lot of decent people in the Liberal Party were shocked. And I'm going to name the names, I'm going to put them on a row. They started trotting out Fraser as the great hero of the Liberal Party that would say, look, where have we come to? What has happened to the Liberal Party? Things were so much better in the past. And these people that trotted out Fraser were Julian Burnside, John Managew, a former head of the Immigration Department, Ian McPhee, Fraser's second immigration minister, Robert Mann, the academic at Trobe University, and there are some others, but these are the main culprits who trotted at Fraser on a big shield, held him up aloft, and held him up high, saying, this is how a good liberal government can act. Fraser did it. John Howard, you're a piece of scum, and you're a scandal to this nation. That's how they held up Fraser. And, of course, Fraser was quite happy with this redemption and started speaking out about asylum seeker treatment under the Howard government and beyond. And he spoke very critically, and he was factually correct. Fraser was very good, factually, following Tampa and following his ascent to the exemplary status that had been uh, Peddled and promoted by Robert Mann, Julian Burnside, John Manadu, and uh, Ian McPhee. So that's where Fraser's come from in the last 15 years since Tampa. But those same people, who uh, I must say are academics or semi academics, are major spokespersons around Australia were um, immediately followed by a number of um, senior journalists and other spokespersons. I do know that Sarah Hansen-Young had Fraser as her election campaign manager or promoter in the 2013 election, so the Greens do it as well. But they are uncritically about Fraser's past and how Fraser actually dealt with refugees and asylum seekers during his time. We have rhetoric that was developed during the Fraser period and has been with us forever since because developing rhetoric precedes developing legislation. And once rhetoric is established in parliamentary circles, in political circles, it is often here to stay for a very long time, wafting its dirty stench around the nation. That's what I accuse Fraser of.
2: Jack what did you learn of his relationship with the people at the Department of Immigration? Because they're one of the sticking points, aren't they? Major yeah, sticking point. I
0: am not so clear. Fraser in his memoirs has been so evasive. He was quite happy to call them racists. But do you remember that army sergeant speaking out on video two years, three years ago about the sexual abuse of army cadets and the hazing rituals? He says, "If that is what you do, get out. We don't want you in the army." Remember? Mm-hmm. Now, I have never heard Fraser say anything of the sort about the racists who were working in the immigration department. Fraser has been equal, uh, has been characterised as somebody who was aloof. And yes, it is true. He was probably detached, and he probably was so aloof that a lot of stuff he just didn't know about or didn't want to know about that happened in the Immigration Department. Yesterday evening, there was an interview with Fraser from George Megalogenius on the ABC, where Fraser actually said that the Immigration Department probably didn't want anybody from Vietnam to come here. Well, hello, that was your department, Malcolm Fraser. You were the Prime Minister. What did you do? Did you sack anybody in the Immigration Department? Did you demand that the culture of the Immigration Department change? No, you did not, Malcolm. Because just before Fraser, Whitlam had closed down the Immigration Department because he said, and he was overt about it, they could not be redeemed. The department was so racist, it could not be redeemed. And Fraser got a mech into action as soon as he became Prime Minister. He um, resurrected the Immigration Department. And what did he do? We have no record of him blasting the Immigration Department. We have no record of Fraser blasting the racist undertones, underpinnings of the department. We have no record of Fraser demanding that if the UN Convention is invoked, the bloody department needs to do its job. And if you don't want to do, do this job, get out. We don't have a record of that.
2: So you'd have no problems with the writing in this paper which says, Fraser's policies were neither a departure from the past nor the antithesis of current policies. To the contrary, they were the seeds of the contemporary Australian model of asylum.
0: Exactly, and not just the model of asylum, but also the rhetoric around it and the discourse. Q-jumper is the gift from the Fraser government from 1975 to 1983, and successive governments built on that. Fraser had the first people smuggling legislation, which is, in effect, making the transporters, the facilitators of the journeys, criminal individuals that can be thrown in jail. There were some calls in the parliamentary debates during Fraser that the punishments were too harsh. 10 years maximum imprisonment for somebody who organizes her voyage to get asylum seekers on a boat to Australia. That was Fraser. And when I confronted Fraser online with this about three years ago, he bullied me. He barked at me utter nonsense. I have checked all this stuff you wrote with Ian McPhee and he denies it ever took place. Well. I did not just say something from the back of my neck. I was quoting The Bloody Hansard, where Ian McPhee himself introduced the laws in 1981. And then Ian McPhee says it's utter nonsense, and Malcolm Fraser says it's utter nonsense, what I argue. So that's how Fraser dealt with his own history. His memoirs talk about a lot of stuff, including refugees. It doesn't mention the people smuggling legislation with one word. There's a lot of stuff. He doesn't mention the use of the word queue jumper with one word in his in my memoirs. Fraser had a very selective memory to what he did in government about the asylum seekers.
2: And it seems, from what I've heard people talk about him, that it was only asylum seekers that he seems to have this selective memory.
0: He has been fatted as a great achiever of the refugee intake. So he did it already, and the government did it already when he was in government. They don't talk about asylum seekers. They talk about annual refugee intake. Look there. Don't look here. Because that's just a, you know, they minimized the notion of boats by calling them spontaneous boats. And lo and behold do not dare to come in an organised boat to Australia. So that was worked under the table. It was legislated by law during his government, but Malcolm Fraser never talks about it, because he rather talks about how every year he increased the annual refugee intake from the camps, because that was his greatest achievement, according to all these people that stood up after Tampa.
2: Good work, Jack.
0: All right, well... You know, I'm used to being in a select small group of rebels and there we are. I'm with the few again.
2: Well, you're with with the few here at 3CR too. we we sort of getting to that category as well.
0: (laughs) Good. Keep it up. (laughs) Okay, Jack. (laughs) Thank you, Jane. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
2: And that's Jack Smith from Project SAFECOM in Western Australia and we'll hear more about um, Malcolm Fraser too a bit later in the program. The war in Syria has now entered its fifth year, devastating the ancient cities and villages and terrorising the populations, untold deaths and causing millions of internal and external refugees. While the US denies involvement with ISIS in Syria and Iraq, it is becoming clearer that it is and has been heavily involved as part of a process of creating destruction in the region following on from the demise of governments in Libya, Iraq and further afield. I'm speaking now with Dr. Tim Anderson, lecturer in political economy at the Sydney University. Tim, little by little information is coming out about the relationship between Washington and ISIS at this moment. What is that information?
4: It's been known for quite a quite a while a long time that Washington and what was originally the Islamic State in Iraq back in about 2006. It was part of a campaign they were going to change the Middle East. Uh, you remember Israel invaded South Lebanon in 2006 and basically failed to get meet their objectives and killed a number of people. But Hezbollah basically defeated them and, and Israel withdrew. That was part of the, the idea that the Bush administration had this new Middle East. What was concerning them at the time in Iraq was that, and of course there was no conflict with, um, with Syria at this time, Really, they had some sanctions and so on, but there was no armed conflict that they were backing. In Iraq, what concerned them was that the Iraqi government, as a result of their invasion, was moving closer to Iran, having good relations with Iran, something that the U.S. had tried to destroy ever since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Remember, the U.S. had backed Saddam Hussein against Iran, which had kicked the U.S. out. And then at one stage, they even uh, were arming Iran, so the conflict would go on to, to weaken both sides. After they invaded Iraq, when the, the regime that Saddam had was pushed out, there was a natural sort of gravitation of the Iraqis to have a better relationship with Iran, partly ethnically, partly just uh, the natural sort of good neighbourly inclinations. But the U.S. didn't want that, so they got the Saudis in particular, and Qatar and the others to fund this, what they call, you know, a Sunni resentment at Shia sectarianism, that's, that's what they call it, that's what they still call it today that you know the the regime in baghdad or iran are inflaming sectarian tensions in fact it's entirely the reverse it's the u.s through their puppets the saudis in particular and with syria turkey is very important to inflame this sort of salafism salafist extremism which became a whole range of groups the latest one of which is is isis but it was ice originally it was part of their process to fracture Iraq. The other one was the Kurds, of course, giving the Kurds greater regional autonomy. So there were conflicts between Baghdad and the Kurds over how they were dealing with the oil companies and um, the Kurdish administration in Iraq. The regional administration wanted um, to, you know, have direct contracts with the oil companies and so on. So the former Prime Minister, Maliki, in, in Iraq was on the one hand closer to Iran, on the other hand trying to maintain... Uh, central Baghdad government control over the oil companies and he was starting to cooperate with um, Bashar al-Assad in Syria when the conflict was, was raging in Syria on border security along there. So the same group that was used against Baghdad was really pushed across the border into Syria and there was some sort of split mainly to do with the the, the patrons of these armed groups between the two, what were two branches? What seemed, what became two branches of the old Al Qaeda, Jabhat al Nusra, which was a support group set up to support the Salafis in the Islamists in in Syria, and ISIS that, that crossed the borders there and was coming into some of the eastern parts of Syria. What happened with ISIS in Syria was really a, a result of attempts to destabilise Baghdad, basically, and then of course the US was maintaining the fictional boundary between the the Islamist groups, claiming that that some were moderate and some were were extreme. Now, in more recent times, (laughs) sorry this is taking so long, but in more recent times, the Iraqis have been complaining publicly since November last year that the US, which has claimed to be bombing ISIS but hasn't really done much of a job of it, has actually been dropping supplies, including arms, to ISIS in at least two of the provinces in Iraq. One of the one of the recent reports on that, for example, it's all coming from Iraqi sources, Iraqi militia commanders and um, members of parliament. One of the recent ones uh, last month, actually, in a Turkish newspaper, was that uh, the US planes were continuing dropping weapon supplies for ISIL in Iraq. So. If true, this is a double game, basically. On on the one hand, the U.S. has admitted that their allies are supporting ISIS, that the vice president and the head of the army, Martin Dempsey, had admitted that Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar are supporting ISIS. Now what's coming out of Iraq is that the U.S. directly, through their sorties over the ISIS areas, have been dropping weapons and um, and actual arms. And the the sources in this uh, report from Turkey are, for example the coordinator of the Iraqi Popular Forces, Jafar al Jabri, a member of the al-Sadr bloc in the Iraqi parliament, Jomai Divan, uh, an MP, Majid al-Gharawi, a woman spokesperson for a group there, Nala al-Hababi, the deputy chief of staff of the Iranian armed forces, Brigadier General Masoud Jasseri, and uh, an Iraqi MP, Hakim al Zameli. So there's quite a range of Iraqi sources. It's blocked. It's not coming out in the, in the Western media at all. Quite a range of sources over a number of months that there is direct um, supply of ISIS by the US.
2: Also concerns that there are US troops in Syria at the moment. Is that been verified?
4: I believe they've they've seen evidence of special forces um, across the Turkish border into some of the the Kurdish areas there. Some of the Kurdish groups are playing a bit of a double game there. They've they got support from the Syrian government in the past, but they're also keen to get support from the US. So there's um there's a a, a complicated and difficult thing to understand. For example, their biggest enemies have been the Turkish government, but it was um, the YPG, a Kurdish group, that allowed the Turkish army into Syria some weeks back to remove a very old grave that they have been protecting in in an enclave in Syria. So what sort of deal that Kurdish group did with the Turkish government is hard for me to understand, really, but um, they are playing a, a complicated game themselves, some of the Kurdish groups. It's funny because um, a lot of people have great difficulty in comprehending that the US might be directly supplying ISIS because, of course, it contradicts the official story completely. But it's out in the open that their major allies for years have been supplying ISIS. So it's a very short step for me to say that if you're going to your major allies in the region, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Turkey, are are supplying this group and supporting this group and and the other Islamist groups, then uh, you're doing it yourself is not such a big step but um, that's the one that's been, been blocked because of course it's so fatal to the idea that there's a, a new war on terror going on.
2: And what does Turkey get out of all this?
4: Well Turkey has a big plan there because the President Erdogan is really a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and has visions of himself being a, a major regional player. It's, it's a resurrection in many respects of the Ottoman idea through uh, Islamist groups basically. So his ambitions in the biggest middle eastern neighbor as you see a potentially islamist neighbor is syria erdogan has been particularly aggressive towards syria which goes against the history actually that the the peoples on the border have had a very good relationship and a lot of the turks are very upset a lot of the turkish alibis from the south of turkey are very moderate muslims like the the more moderate muslims in or europeanized muslims in syria they've had very good relationships and erdogan's destroyed all that next tim
2: the implications of Netanyahu's election in Israel, but even before that, his latest visit to the US and the implications of that.
4: Yeah, well, it seems that there's a there's a big rift between the the Obama administration and, and Netanyahu, which is quite dangerous for Israel, and I think a lot of um, diaspora Jews and some Israelis are upset about Netanyahu for it. Of course, in the Israeli system, the coalition that's there, you know, Netanyahu only, his party only got although it increased its vote, it's only less than 24% of the vote. So he has a very small direct mandate. If you include all of the people in Israel, including the Occupied Territories, I calculated this recently, his overall vote is less than 15%. That is to say, in Israel and the Occupied Territories, the people that actually vote for Likud are less than 15%. But then he has um, allies in other um, Zionist parties in Israel there. So his expedition to the US was really about pushing a more aggressive agenda on Iran he wants the US to attack Iran they would look like they were going to do it about five years ago but really the Syrian war has, has derailed all that because the US typically doesn't although they don't, I was going to say they don't want to extend themselves but if you look at what they're doing in Venezuela Ukraine and the Middle East now it looks like pretty seriously like overextension but anyway there was this division over Iran and the agreement that the US is claiming to be on the verge of this agreement over the the nuclear power industry in Iran and that's led to i think the arrogance from netanyahu's thinking that they really he really does control the us i think there's a lot of arab people that are confused about this too that think that you know the the zionist tail wags the imperial dog in that sort of relationship between washington and israel i've always thought it's it's pretty clear that washington is the boss but it's certainly true that that israel has a very strong influence on on us foreign policies so that tension is going on at the moment it's also reflected in some dissent between the Congress the Republican dominated Congress and the Obama administration
2: but just that vision of a of another leader coming to the United States and telling them what their foreign policy should be
5: yeah
4: yeah well well. maybe they're hopeful that there's going to be a you know, there's going Change. to be Republican a Republican, um, a Republican uh, president of the United States and they'll, they'll do better that way so there's there is this sort of serious conflict which could undermine the relationship I mean it depends there are very it's uncertain how it's playing out in the US, but there's a lot at stake because um, a number of Israelis and, and uh, Zionists outside Israel resent the fact that Netanyahu could be endangering the $3 billion a year in arms support that the US gives to Israel.
2: Is that more in danger now since he's come out finally and said that he's not going to allow a Palestinian state?
4: It, it heightens that contradiction because there is still this illusion that somehow or other on parts of those that support the Israeli state, let's say, and much more widely around the world that this two-state option is actually a possibility after they've honeycombed the West Bank with all of these colonies. And, by the way, colonies which can vote in the elections, but the the Jews can vote in the the colonies in the West Bank can vote in the election, but the Palestinians can't. So it's become even more obviously and blatantly a racist system. And the the two-party solution is... um, the more that's destroyed, the more the identity of Israel is threatened because it'll be a racist state with, with stateless people within it and no possible solution. I think Israel itself has killed the two-state solution. That's my, my view. But there are people that hang on to it, you know, prominent Jewish people that hang on to that idea still.
2: And, of course, it's not just the US that, that supports Israel, major trading partners in the, in the EU and, and other parts of the world.
4: Yeah, there's more of an ambiguity in Europe. Britain has strong support for Israel still, but there's more of an ambiguity across Europe, as there is with a number of other things, like the aggression against Russia. Uh, the Europeans are much more ambiguous about that than, than the US has been.
2: What about the Russian support for Israel? How extensive is that?
4: There is a tradition of strong Russian support for Israel, but then again, they, they also have strong support for the Arab states. That's also a tradition there. So, um, you know, the, the politics of Putin administrations have been that he didn't come into, this, uh, into office um, the first time round anti-US or anti-European, far from it. But really he's been, he's been pushed and pushed in, in recent years to the point where he's having to make some pragmatic adjustments there, basically. He also has, on the one hand, this is geopolitics too, of course, That so you, you remember he has good relationships with Turkey, but he's backing Israel against a war which Turkey is deeply involved in. Yet at the same time, there's a, there's a bigger game going on there that um, Turkey is sort of in this ambiguous position with Europe. And recently they, they asked to join the Eastern Group that's forming the Shanghai Cooperation Group with China and, and, uh, and Russia. And that has implications for gas pipelines and things like that. So that, that's a big game plan which really affects what's going on in Europe with the U.S. and the Ukraine now. The U.S. trying to sort of weaken Europe's economic and gas links to Russia. Pulling Turkey one way will give Russia more influence in Turkey, and I suppose maybe something of the similar thing goes on with Israel. There, there's been some historical links between Russia and Israel, and if if the, if the Russia maintains good relationships with Israel, they may have more influence if the ties with uh, the US weaken. That's always in the in the mind of uh, of a big player in world politics.
2: Well, in the light of what you said, where does that leave the BDS movement?
4: against Israel is also sort of has two potentially strategic arms, doesn't it? Because some of the, the, the criticism of it really from within those who, are, who support Palestinian people is that it's implicitly recognising, or, or some sections of it implicitly recognise Israel and implicitly recognise um, a racist state as a legitimate sort of ongoing entity in the region. The one-state group says, no, look, there has to be a democratic state in Palestine, Israel. And, you know, a Jewish state is not viable in the way that South Africa was not viable. The two-state solution these days always reminds me of the of stones in South Africa, if you remember that, that there were these little tribal areas dotted around South Africa. Look honeycomb, little small areas that was going to be where the majority of the population were going to live, that was going to be their land. That's more or less what's been happening with the West Bank recently, with all of the, the col- colonies, or what they call settlements in the West Bank. So the BDS movement really is sitting in the middle of that, and maybe some people pretend it doesn't exist, but it's very articulated either with a, um, a one-state approach or a two-state approach.
2: And we have to acknowledge that the oppression and repression of the, the Palestinians continues while all these affairs go on worldwide.
4: Absolutely. There's still ethnic cleansing going on almost every day in Palestine. It's, uh, it's a shocking condemnation of, you know, the educated populations of the world that, well, at least say in the Western media, because, um, you know, the Arab world doesn't have any illusions and most of the Latin American world and African world doesn't have so many illusions. But the Western media really keeps trying to dress this up as something that they keep saying. It's the, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the region. It's a farce. Um, Netanyahu, as as I said, has less than 15% support of the people in the areas that his administration covers.
2: Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855 and what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap so well done i tried to get in there before helen razor to say that that was dr tim anderson lecturer in political economy at sydney university the 2015 duck slaughter began on saturday and soon after laurie levy was arrested and fined over eight hundred dollars I spoke with Laurie an hour ago on his return from Parliament House. Laurie, I'd imagine it would have been a very harrowing weekend for you and the rescuers and another harrowing time at Parliament House today.
1: Yes, we displayed 100 uh, uh, native water birds which had been gunned down by duck shooters over the weekend and those birds included threatened freckle ducks, threatened bluebill ducks, swan, which are fully protected, and a lot of other protected species as well as a lot of game species which had been shot and just left on the water by shooters.
2: Do any of the parliamentarians come out to see you?
1: No, in fact, there's a line of police across the front door of the Premier's uh, office building. You know, we take the birds there because it's politicians who sanction the slaughter but they refused to go to the wetlands to see uh, the cruelty and the violence that's inflicted on native water birds, so we take the victims to the politicians.
2: What was it like at the weekend? Worse, better than any other time?
1: Well, most of northwest Victoria was dry, and the two wetlands that did have water had been artificially filled to encourage birds onto those uh, wetlands for the shooters. This, this is a form of canned hunting and of course the brutality that we saw out there were absolutely shocking Uh, a number of our rescuers were deeply affected traumatized by what this they saw we and we anticipated that and we had a counselor with us we had a, a doctor and an ambo just in case of emergencies and a number of our rescuers it was a very cold day and the And a very cold wind blowing and a number of our rescuers came down with hypothermia uh, and they were treated by the AMBO and the, the doctor there. You see all these beautiful birds take off when the guns go off. Suddenly shooters are firing all over the place and birds start coming down and, you know, when rescuers get to those birds... The horrific injuries and the cruelty and the birds are often still alive. They're dying but they're still alive and for new rescuers especially, uh, and rescuers are sensitive people and that's why they're out there. They're out there to help those birds but for new rescuers it's traumatic. It's upsetting. We all feel that. It's just that we've got to keep going because if we're not there, the government doesn't put anyone out there to, to help birds. There are no government mobile veterinary clinics, so we've got to do that job. We've been doing it for 30 years. The fines for rescuers have just been increased to $886, so all those rescuers who brave the guns by going into the water to help wounded birds on the weekend will most likely all be fined $886 for caring.
2: What happens when you go out onto the water to rescue these birds?
1: Well, we go out onto the water and uh, uh, obviously we wear bright colours, fluoro jackets. And the the range of a shotgun is only about 50 to 80 metres and the birds have to come into range before being shot. And when the birds can see rescuers, they'll keep out of shotgun range. Hunters wear camo gear, they're hard to see on the water, and birds can't often see them where they can see our rescuers. And that will help them keep out of uh, shotgun range and be safe but the birds that are hit of course suffer immensely a lot of shooters don't even bother to pick up wounded birds it's a trying time for the vets we have in our mobile veterinary clinic because they're on the go most of the day in fact all of the day trying to cope with the flood of victims coming in.
2: Were the children there when you were there at the weekend with their parents or relatives?
1: Yes, there are also young kids of probably seven or eight out there with their fathers, actually on the water, which they shouldn't be, but I don't see any of them getting booked, of course. And some of the kids looked terrified when all the guns were going off. I just find it hard to understand how a modern-day Labor Daniel Andrews government can support this shocking gun violence and cruelty to native water birds. I mean, duck shooting is an activity that belongs in the 1950s. The fact that a modern-day Labor government in Victoria can support this level of violence and cruelty is is just amazing. I I just don't understand it.
2: And this is a government who said before the election that we are going to tackle domestic violence in all, all separate ways. Well, surely... Discouraging men from walking around with guns is one, one good way to lessen well, well, violence in the society.
1: One would think that uh, the Premier would understand that. I mean, we fully support his Royal Commission into family violence, but what he has to understand is that there's a cycle of violence that happens. The Premier is quite happy to put guns, powerful shotguns, into the hands of 12-year-olds to go out and commit shocking acts of violence and cruelty to native water birds And, of course, he wonders why sometimes that level of violence happens in the home. And and also, the other thing that I didn't understand about the Premier is supporting cage fighting.
2: And just in case people might think that the, the duck slaughter is over at the weekend, it goes on for how many weeks?
1: Yes, it goes on for three months. And, you know, this has been an extremely dry year. Uh, Professor Richard Kingsford conducted his aerial surveys and Professor Richard Kingsford works for the University of New South Wales and has been doing aerial surveys counting waterbirds since 1983 and Professor Kingsford's latest report for this year said that waterbird numbers were down by 60% f- from what they were in 1983 and that the so-called game birds that shooters are allowed to go after were hardly breeding. But yet the same conditions applied in 2007 and 2008 when the then Labor government banned shooting for two years. But this government, the Andrews government, gave duck shooters a full season, except after the opening weekend where most of the birds are shot anyway, he dropped the bag limit to, uh, to five a day. But, of course, uh, shooters will just say that they can get over that by going out more times during the year.
2: And shut a couple of wetlands that will dry anyway.
1: Down near Hamilton, there were brolgas on Bulrush Swamp, and, of course, the local field naturalist down at Hamilton wanted the wetland closed, and rightly so. There were 40 brolgas, and that was, I think, a third of the population that's in Victoria. And then the government refused to close Bull Rush and they said they were closing Krauss Swamp, which is really next door, to give the birds a, a sanctuary to go to when the shooting started. But as the field Nats pointed out, Krauss Swamp has been completely and bone dry for quite some time now. So both ministers, Jala Pulford and Lisa Neville, put their names to a public notice in the Herald Sun closing off a dry wetland that had no water, no birds, to shooting. It's crazy.
2: Do you get the chance to speak with local people in the area to find out how they feel about these people coming in and shooting up wildlife?
1: We're getting a lot of support from regional Victoria. We get farmers ringing up saying that there are birds on their wetland or dam that's very close by and can we come up and help keep shooters off them. Uh, I know the residents uh, around Cancurran Curran Reservoir, which is between Bendigo and Ballarat, have been fighting their own campaign to keep duck shooters off Cancurran, And they've been putting out media releases. They were talking to the ABC in Bendigo and they had an article in the Bendigo Advertiser. Simply local people in country regions now are fighting their own battles to keep duck shooters off their wetlands. And even at Lake Buloke, you know, when it had water in 2011-12, landowners around Oak are now going public saying they don't want duck shooters on their properties around Oak. So it's all changing. You know, our success over the years in reducing the numbers of duck shooters from 100,000 to about 23,000 today, where they make up only 0.4% of Victoria's population... Our set of success has come through the public. Victorians don't want duck shooting, but we still haven't been able to get to either the Liberal Party or the Labor Party. And it's surprising that Labor Party politicians don't even address cruelty issues, or even when you bring out a hundred illegally shot threatened species, they just don't talk about the issue. The only comment they make to the public or to the media is that duck shooting is a legal recreational activity. Well, as politicians, they had the opportunity to make it an illegal activity, the same way Western Australia did in 1990, some 25 years ago, New South Wales in 1995, and Queensland in 2005. And, of course, Peter Beattie banned duck shooting in Queensland when he was Premier, saying that Queensland is now the smart state for looking after its water birds. And Victoria is lagging a long way behind the Queensland government.
2: Do you get a chance to have a look at these shooters and and just gauge whether they're the old shooters or are these young people coming on?
1: Really, it's the older shooter. I think it's a generational thing. Duck shooting is, is definitely dying. There's no doubt about that. You know, in the Early days of duck shooting, when we used to go out to the wetlands in 1989, we'd go to Lake Bulloak. Lake Oak would get 10 to 15,000 duck shooters on the opening morning. Well, when Bulloak refilled again in uh, 2011, shooters were putting out notices that they were giving away tens of thousands of dollars in prize money, and that was Field and Game Australia, to try and encourage shooters to bullock. And on the day of the 2011 duck shooting season, there were only 400 duck shooters there, not the old 10 to 15,000, and the same again in 2012. but that just highlighted to us how duck shooting has reached its end, but those duck shooters who are there will keep going until the government bans the activity forever.
2: What was the circumstances of your arrest?
1: I was fined $886 for being on the water to start with. But while I was out on the water, a number of rescuers were running and being chased by a compliance officer in a homemade hunter canoe or, or a kayak or whatever you want to call it. But he was screaming out to them to stop. One of them had a wounded bird. I knew that if he had have stopped them, he would have confiscated the bird and killed it. And the worst thing that can happen to a rescuer, if you want to hurt a rescuer, you take a wounded bird off them and, you know, that's the thing that hurts the most because they feel totally responsible for that bird's safety. This compliance officer was chasing the rescuers. The rescuers went past me and as the compliance officer came past me, I just grabbed onto his kayak and held him and he was screaming at me to let go and I dragged the kayak into shore and uh, he couldn't stand up and do anything about it because he would have fallen out of it, but he called on his uh, his other compliance officers to arrest me and uh, I was marched back to the police caravan, did an interview and it looks like I'll be charged with obstructing a compliance officer in the course of his duty.
2: What does it take out of you every year, Laurie? I think it's number 29, isn't it? 1986?
1: Um, Yes, 29 years. And it's exhausting. It it really is. And I guess the older uh, you get, the harder it gets on the body, I can tell you. But it's one of those things that we have to do it. and, And we can't walk away from it. Because if we walked away, there'd be nobody to help those birds. There'd be nobody to witness the illegal shooting of threatened species. The government pours millions of dollars still into millions of taxpayers' dollars into the shooters, into looking after them, and nothing, absolutely not a single cent, into looking after our native water birds. And in fact, having two ministers now, one in environment and one in agriculture, who are responsible for the duck shooting issue, there's nobody looking after threatened species either. and and it's a disgrace in 2015 there's still absolutely not a single government department that looks after and takes responsibility for the welfare of our native water birds so we just have to keep doing this job until duck shooting is banned in this state
2: and you need help to pay the fines
1: Uh, Yes, we we need a lot of help. I I mean, the most wonderful thing going in, you know, we told rescuers well before the opening morning that they could face an $886 fine for going in and not one pulled out. They all went into the water. Uh, They all were prepared to face those fines. And as they said, if we don't do this job, nobody else will.
2: Thanks, Laurie.
1: Thank you very much for that, Jan.
2: And that's Laurie Lieber from the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. If you can help i will say that again
6: My name is Sonia Carker, and I'm a co-founder for Australians for Palestine and women for Palestine and I wanted to write a tribute to Malcolm Fraser. Malcolm Fraser's often quoted phrase life was never meant to be easy, has uncanny parallels with T.S. Eliot's poem, The Hollow Men, and their realisation that in a world of desolation between two states of being, or between heaven and hell, life is very long. Indeed, after his prime ministership, Malcolm Fraser saw in his own life's journey a chance to reflect and speak out on some of the most pressing humanitarian issues of our times. Palestine was one of them. Some people think he was seeking redemption for his authoritarian policies during his eight years as this country's prime minister. Others have not been so forgiving. Wherever one's proclivities might lie, three decades and more of speaking out for those unable to speak for themselves, when he could have retired to his privileged Western district lifestyle, says more about the human being than the politician. He was, without doubt, a statesman. He was a liberal statesman whose worst critics were often from his own party, especially in recent times when he openly criticised the current state of human rights in Australia and the Western world in a foreword for the Journal of Jurisprudence. But even before then, he took a stand for Palestine. In 2008, Australians for Palestine, Women for Palestine and the Australian Friends of Palestine sought a parliamentary acknowledgement of 60 years of Palestinian suffering as a counterpoint to the bipartisan motion passed congratulating Israel on its 60 years of independence. Not a single reply to our letters was received from any member of parliament. It was Malcolm Fraser who wrote a very public and honourable endorsement by way of an article saying that he supported our appeal to the Australian Parliament to pass a resolution recognising the hardships of the Palestinian people and committing Australia to work for a fair and peaceful resolution and the establishment of a viable independent state for Palestinians. He was always ready to defend Palestinian human rights and especially criticised Israel's whipping away of Palestinian land to build illegal Israeli settlements including in East Jerusalem. His government had firmly maintained Australia's even-handed Middle East policy, but he saw that position being eroded with each successive government increasing support for Israel in lockstep with the US. Unlike so many Canberra politicians, he never resorted to craven declarations of allegiances to Israel. In a 2011 article, he said, There is an Israeli lobby that governments are not prepared to offend. And he went on to say that if Israel and the U.S. persist in dividing the Palestinians into hostile camps between Fatah and Hamas, Israel will lose more and more friends and will place its own future in danger. He was very aware that debating issues on Israel-Palestine invariably stirs up charges of anti-Semitism as a way of protecting Israel. But he believed that we should no more stop ourselves from criticising Israel's bad policies or actions out of fear of being called anti-Semitic than we would stop ourselves criticising any other country for bad policies because it might be construed as a racist slur against its people. Paying lip service to our even-handedness, he said in a 2009 article, is not the way for Australia to play an effective role in finding a just and peaceful solution to what is universally regarded the longest-running human tragedy and injustice of our times. He believed that Australia must not be cowed into an uncritical view of Israel's action. His words fell on deaf ears in Canberra. By 2014, the Palestinian situation had deteriorated further. Israel's massive bombardment of Gaza more than five years earlier was only outdone in its viciousness by a new 50-day-long military operation in July-August. More than 2,100 Palestinians were killed, and over 11,000 were wounded. So catastrophic was the destruction of homes and infrastructure that at the peak of Israel's assault, Nearly half a million people were displaced, and months later, some 108,000 Palestinians still remain homeless. The devastation was horrific, and the world could not ignore it. In Australia, some 80 politicians came together to issue the Canberra Declaration on Gaza. He called on Australian parliamentarians to support an immediate ceasefire and an end to Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories and the blockade of Gaza. Malcolm Fraser was the only liberal from any former or current coalition members of parliament to sign the declaration. A month earlier, he had tweeted, If any other country went to war, killing as many civilians, women and children, it would be named a war crime. Fraser's words may yet come back to haunt the hollow men and women in Canberra. After all, life is very long. To those who see nothing worth remembering or honouring in more than 30 years of a differently lived life, they should know we are all the hollow men and women of T.S. Eliot's poem. Some condemned to never seeing redemption, while others are left to make sense of life's cruelties in whatever way we can. No one knows that better than the Palestinians. Rather than think Malcolm Fraser could not stomach his party moving so far to the right, many would like to believe that his realization of the horrors we visit on each other in the name of ideology already had taken root a long time ago, and that the legacy he leaves with us is that of a vastly changed man. His passing should be yet another moment for reconciliation and forgiveness. Malcolm Fraser had the courage to look into the eyes of those who offer no hope and foreseeing beyond the darkness of death's twilight kingdom. His was one of many lone voices in an infinite wilderness, but it was heard and is recorded for history. He chose to make a difference. For that, Palestinians in Australia remember him with the utmost respect and gratitude.
2: Sonia Kaka from the group Australians for Palestine.
6: 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
2: Dr Colin McNaughton is back in Australia after living and working in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia as a lecturer in journalism at the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Monash University, Sunway campus. When we spoke, I asked him first about the jailing of Malaysian opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim and a comment in our media. Quote, The verdict comes as the government, dominated by UMNO, that has ruled Malaysia since independence in 1957, is under increasing criticism from the middle class for propelling the country towards a rigorous version of Islam.
5: And just the first thing to say is I'm not a, an expert on or, you know, I haven't studied deeply Malaysian cultures more just having lived there and talked to people who've obviously from there. Some of the things I might say might be a bit impressionistic, but by the same token, as an outsider, often you can see things that maybe insiders don't quite see. So it's that weird. So, you know, there may be still some value in what I'm trying to say, what's happening is Umno power has been going on for the last 60 years since independence. That power was always based on the Bumiputra and they were in the cities and in the countryside. So what's happening is they use the word middle class. It's one of those words that can mean everything and nothing, but largely it's the city-based Malay Muslims no longer are supporting Umno. And what's happening is it's the countryside, the country-based Malay Muslims, are supporting UMNO. And that's their power base. Now, if they want to keep their power base, they've got to keep those guys happy. And they're quite a bit more conservative than the city guys because the city guys are often more... Liberal, they've been around, they've might have traveled and this and that and the other. And they're not necessarily the mosque and the role of the mosque in terms of its actual social organization is not as central. It may actually be consumerism or a whole lot of the other dynamics that are actually more central. And a lot of those communities, and you can't say all oh, because it's quite different regionally, but a lot of them are actually becoming more conservative. Some are moving towards Sharia law or Hudud. There's a real push and pull. So to keep their power, they must maintain this Bumi Putra support in the countryside. But then at the same token, they've also got that thin veneer of, let's call it global capitalist sort of social relations and experiences overlaying that deep feudalism that is the UMNO power. Because I think that's part of it too. Because in Australia, or say say looking from Australia, you don't really understand... The power of the feudal system, and I'm using the word feudal, and even then it's not exactly right, but I'm tr- language is difficult. But the legacy of the sultan and the sultanate, and you've got to understand there's still centrality in Humno power and the reproduction of power in Malaysia to be able to understand how it actually works. It's actually quite a complicated little monster.
2: And the history of the sultans?
5: I think the first layer is, start with the whole question that actually Islam came to Malaysia and that region, Indonesia, exactly, the Malaya archipelago, from India, not from the Arab Peninsula. So that gives a whole layer of contradictions because you have, and obviously in places like Bali, you can still see remnants of that Indian sort of contact and culture because a lot of the language, a lot of the sort of the frames that underpin the society are Indian and that may often be Hindu Indian or Buddhist Indian, but then actually Islam came via India as well. But then when they're talking about, for example, the rise of Islamism in Malaysia, they're not talking to Indian Muslims, they're talking to the Wahhabi Saudi Arabian. And so this is actually part of the shift too in terms of within the Sunni tradition, and then also its tensions with the Shia and how that plays out within both Indonesia and in Malaysia, because it's also that split because... The other part of it is while much of Indonesia and Malaysia are actually Islamic, and that coming from India, but then there's been this split because of how decolonization happened or didn't happen, as the case may be, and the rise of Indonesia as a, as a sort of sovereign nation and the rise of Malaysia. But the actual sort of foundations is they're actually linguistically, culturally, socially very closely related. But you'll see a lot of images in the Malay media on the front page, you know, much like the sort of bolt murdoch type media here about refugees indonesians are invading our country and it's like hold on it's the same guys they speak pretty much the same language it's the same period of people but then there's this sort of national discourse that goes on that sort of underpins that separation and then going back to the sultanate the sultanate or the sultans so basically what, how it works is there's nine sultans in malaysia and they sort of run the different States and they ha- there were different kingdoms that have become states. Now it's not exactly that; they're sort of overlaid and a bit complicated. But they rotate in terms of control. The Sultan, which actually it's like the Queen of England in terms of in Protestant uh, Anglicanism, they are actually the head of Islam in that country. If you know anything about Islam, Islam is not actually nationally based as a religion. It's a universal religion in the sense that you know Muhammad whatever you might think of Islam, it's not actually based in nation states, etc. But in Malaysia it is. Because you have a sort of racially based apartheid system that actually is the constitutional foundation of their nation state. To be a a full citizen in Malaysia, in the Malaysian state, you have to be Muslim. Which then, of course, means you have to actually relate to the kings, and you have to actually abide by that rule. So when you look at how actually the power works in the Malaysian system, whether it's parliamentary or political or economic, the sultanates are very powerful. Uh, when you look at, say, you try and understand a phenomenon like football, and you go, "Why aren't the Malaysia stronger or Indonesia stronger in football?" I take Malaysia for example, and part of the reason is the sultans actually are very powerful in the football teams because they actually it's a way for them to push promote their states, and so things will happen where. You know, the umpire doesn't do a a rule, the correct decision for a certain sultanate, so he'll fly down to the boundary line and start slapping the referee around the head. Legally, the police can never interview, the police can never question. There is no constitutional foundation to question, let alone to actually charge a sultan. So you're on no grounds. If you were go against the sultan, and if I was saying these words in Malaysia, you could <laughs> the door could open right now and boom, we, we all go, off we go, tripping down the sort of hallway, bouncing down the hallway. There was an example of um, sultanate power where there's a young Estonian woman. I think it was in Jahobaru down the south. And basically the sultan's son pretty much murdered and raped a young Estonian model. And they found her body. The little bit was that the media couldn't really talk about it and the police could never interview him because by doing that, you'd be undermining the very foundation of the state. So the way I understood it is there's this whole feudal structure that exists. And where I saw it most adroitly was at the football when the footballers had finished their game and they'd meet the Sultan and they'd all bow their head and put their forehead on his hand as a sort of sign of respect to him. And well, I was sort of like going, what? What? What?" But it was a whole other sort of dynamic going on other than actually football, as I understand it. There's Muslim guys from, you know, the United Arab Emirates, etc., and they're not doing that necessarily to the sheiks and the guys that are supporting them. Yes, they have a whole relationship, and, you know, they're still in the same, ostensibly the same global Islamic tradition or traditions, however you want to understand that. But the point being that this whole other feudal dynamic although I don't want to make necessarily the links to Saudi Arabia because that has its own other sort of dynamic going on, but it's very layered and they're very powerful. And you cannot question them. And this is really the sort of center point of the whole so-called democracy in Malaysia, because not only is it about there is no opposition allowed, essentially, which is what the whole jailing of Amway Ibrahim's about. You can't have an opposition, even though he was actually, he's part of that tradition and part of that crew. He was the number two guy and he just got booted out. It's not like an opposition by the Chinese or the Indians or a sort of left opposition. It's like their own people can't have an opposition. So you get, you get a sense of like, Oh, okay. And then how you're actually going to, you know, because the sultans are actually necessarily, when there's a state buying, a corporation buying something or doing something, the sultan must get a certain cut. The sultan must get a cut on every single deal. And so when you look at the Malaysia Airlines or you look at all the different sort of corporations, state-run corporations, they're on the boards, so they get a certain cut for whatever. And, And this is just throughout the whole of society. So they're getting paid to do what they do, whatever that might be, roll around in Rolls Royces with various police officers and having lunches at flash hotels regularly, not doing a whole lot, hanging out with models from Estonia, and I don't know what, getting all the choicest deals. But you can't question it. And it's grounded in the Constitution. And if you do, it's like goodbye.
2: How prevalent is the influence of Saudi Arabia? Do they fund the madrasas like they do in Indonesia?
5: That's the most one of the most terrifying parts. I remember seeing... And often you can see it by the Wahhabi in Indonesia and in Malaysia, the Wahhabi influence is growing. And obviously at the moment, IS is actually, you know, it's turned on its master, so to speak, and said, oh, well, we come out of Wahhabism, but we've decided we're the caliphate and that you're apostates, i.e. Saudi Arabia. And so you go, okay, well, look at the dog you created. Now it's wanting to chomp on its master, so to speak. So I think there's no reason why that can't happen in other parts of the world as well. So, But but in terms of the the, the nature of the Sunni Islam especially, it's very much influenced by Wahhabism and the power of Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is a really powerful player in the area. When you go around, you you will see lots of Saudi Arabians that go there for holidays. They have a whole lot of different sort of economic and political and cultural ties with Saudi Arabia. They're very intertwined. And obviously the foundation of that is the type of Islam, the Sunni Islam that they're actually promoting. Now, of course, that's, as we know, if you've been watching what's going on in the sort of Syria-Iraq region in the last three or five years, that's just reaching a point of just, who knows what's going to happen next? It could just be a, you know, Russia and the US could go to war. All sorts of things can happen. Saudi Arabia and Iran go to war. Israel starts bombing Iran. We don't know, but it's so at the sort of cusp of a whole lot of, a lot more crazy death and destruction. It's like, how do you put that genie back in the bottle? That influence of the Wahhabism and how they sort of promote their foreign policy throughout the Southeast Asian region is, it's something that really sort of flies under the radar often, but it's quite terrifying.
2: But it is an education.
5: Uh, It's from what I understand, especially in those little mosques in the rural areas, you will find that often it's the Wahhabism is what they're promoting and the way they actually speak. Because another thing that's really central, and this is again a state-based element of the UMNO power, is that when you have, I'll use the Christian terminology because I'm not always sure of the Islamic, but when you have the sort of imam doing the homily, so to speak, the sort of speech, in Malaysia it has to be state-sanctioned and there only can be one and it's got to come through UMNO. So it's actually centralised, where in most in most Islamic traditions, that's not the case. Friday prayers, which is where people get together and where you can actually get some some movement at the station, so to speak, in terms of political action, if something's happening, you can, but the point is the imam is actually tied, legally and culturally and socially, to actually saying what the state party line is. And obviously that's influenced by Wahhabism. So they're not trying to necessarily stop that. The government, the UMNO, is promoting that but by the same token, they're not always necessarily, I think, cognizant of its impact and its implications because they're in this bind of whether they want to be part of global capitalism and yet they also want to support and keep the foundation, the base, the booming putcher in the countryside, which is Wahhabism, at the same time. Now, the contradictions there are just multi-layered and multidimensional and how you actually hold both those things together. With the sort of layering of the feudal layering of the, the sultans and the sultanates, etc., Malaysia really is in a complicated sort of position in, ter- in terms of how it can actually go into the future.
2: You worked in the university sector. What were the influences there?
5: Well, I actually taught journalism. And my little joke, which is not very funny, but it's sort of quite sort of narky, is that teaching journalism in Malaysia was a bit like, bit like teaching um, downhill skiing in Saudi Arabia. It's a good idea if you want to travel. You can't really do it.
2: There's no freedom of the press?
5: It's not that. It's much more subtle than that. When you're trying to teach students the idea of questioning an authority figure, they just look at you going, you are obviously delusional and you're off your head. And so when I'd say, you know, you're going to, I want you to go and talk to the vice chancellor or the chief of police about something or other, they're just looking at me saying, I think you don't understand. Like, It's not just a question of you can't do it. It's a question of they've taught from birth. To never question.
2: And then that's what universities are all about.
5: Sometimes. In in an ideal (laughs) world, which we don't live in. But even in things like journalism, even at the most whatever, the thing is you're actually going to have to talk to people so that was the whole thing with the MH, the, the the losing of that plane, the MH370, whatever it was. What was actually shocking from Malaysia, because I was there when it happened, what was shocking, and I don't think people in other parts of the world understood it, was that what the Malaysian sort of ruling elites, and it is just a couple of families basically that run UMNO, what, what they basically were freaking out about was Western and other journalists actually asking them questions. And you could see their eyes were flaring, and people didn't actually quite understand why, but in their country, you don't. Ask questions. So there's a whole experience there in, say, for example, the, the killing of young Indonesian sort of migrants or illegal migrants and young Indian guys. And the police kill them with quite impunity, much like Aboriginal kids here, but even a bit more, it's even a bit more blatant and unapologetic they'll kill some dude or kill a couple of guys shoot him in the back of the head and they'll have a thing oh we've we found we didn't have to take any fingerprints or do any sort of seal off the area because we already know what it was he had a parang which is like a big sort of machete and he attacked us and we shot him in the head so the little logistical problem that hold on if that was the case how come the bullets in the back of his head and how come he's maybe got blood splattered on his hands from the, his head sort of popping and exploding and it's not on his chest or whatever, which would hold to your story? But, of course, you can't ask that sort of question. And the idea that you would, for most journalists, wouldn't enter your mind. Well, what was the <laughs> point? Of teaching journalism? Well, that's a very good question, which is partly why I'm back here. (laughs) But the thing was, it's very, it's, yeah, the the cultural differences or the cultural, it's not just a question of, you know, there's a whole lot of set of legal frameworks. Because I work with some great journalists who, from Malaysian journalists, who spent years there, had a really good insight into the Sultanate and the police chief and how it worked, Chinese background. You've got to say that in Malaysia because otherwise it's just how it works. You sort of get into the language of it all. But her Chineseness actually was central to sort of how she was able to ask those questions and why. And she told stories about, you know, where she came come from and the whole question of the counterinsurgency and her relationship to that was actually central to her ability to ask questions. And, you know, she was often, sometimes she would tell me stories of the sultan. she'd see something or he'd see something in the paper and go, bring me the editor. And, you know, so he it was, it was calm and, you know, he was in his chair and she was supposed to grovel around on the floor a bit. And it was just like, you know, what are you doing? And so, this whole relationship, the editor, you're meant to sort of go, yes, sir, no, for the three bags full, sir. She was also not silly in terms of she wasn't being cheeky, because if you be cheeky, that's the whole other, you know, small Chinese woman. With big mouth, I'm sure is not appreciated. But by the same token, she wanted to maintain her own dignity. So the difficulty of actually talking to the Sultanate, and now she got through that, or Chief of Police or whoever, but the, the processes they have in terms of demeaning, delittling, controlling, very subtle but sophisticated processes. And this is just the, the sort of the anecdotes that I got, but it's quite systemic. And like I was saying, it actually starts at birth, and it's actually a, a whole society sort of trained to think in a certain way and to be a certain way and sort of any notion of rebellion is, or any notion of sort of asking the questions of authority is pretty much rooted out. Where you actually get any real questioning, when they say the opposition, it has a certain meaning in the Malaysian context, but it's not really what anyone in, say, Australia or other parts of the world would understand as that word means.
2: Well, give us an example of what you might include in the lecture, in our lecture.
5: I actually, uh, what's the word? Tried to set the cat among the pigeons. Quite a few times. So, I did lectures sometimes where I'd talk about this guy called Chin Peng, and he was a well known Malaysian communist. When we were there, when I was there, and literally a week before I actually had the lecture, his ashes weren't allowed to be brought back to Malaysia. So, what I said was, okay, you're going to have to write a story on the ashes of Chin Peng. On the process of doing that, you've got to actually discuss what happened in Malaysia between 1940. 46 and 54 and then even further because the insurgency went until the 80s and the room was deadly silent.
2: And I'm afraid it's going to have to stay silent until next week. We'll hear more from Dr Colin McNaughton on the program next week. That's all for me. Jonathan's here. Bye for now.